Um, yeah, it was a little over a year ago, or maybe more than that. Can't remember that uh, Leanna and I were here, and uh, we were among you guys. And we were. Um, he said that we beautifully served, but we were also beautifully served by you. And uh, I'm just really grateful to be uh, back in front of you all and able to share God's word with you. I think that's just. Um, it's a cool moment for me to be back here. Um, I grew up on Cape Cod, for those of you who don't know me, and I uh, didn't meet a Christian until I was 21. I uh, became a believer when I was 24, and then went to Dallas uh, to go to seminary, which is where I met Clint, who's the pastor of the Waltham Church. And so my wife and I and our daughter, we moved back up to Massachusetts to come to this church with Clint and get ready to plant the church in Waltham, all the while preparing to plant a church on Cape Cod in Hyannis. And so that's our next big thing is we're going to be moving to uh, the Hyannis area in June to start Seven Mile Road Hyannis, and uh, we're super excited about that. And um, again, really grateful to be here. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us uh, before we begin. Father, thank you for uh, this day. Thank you that uh, we get to gather together to hear your word. Thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. Um, there are difficult truths in your word sometimes, God, and uh, it's easy to want to shy away from those, shy away from hearing them, shy away from preaching them. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts today, open our hearts to hear and do your word, to have an active faith um, after hearing what it is that you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So back in July, uh, in Panama City, Roberta looked up and her worst fear came true. She couldn't find her children. She was at the beach, right? They pretty quickly, her eyes darted over the water. Uh, She heard them screaming for help, and she found out that they had been pulled out in 15 feet of water, and they were trapped. So a lot of people warned her not to go in after her children, but she and her mother raced to their rescues only to find themselves also trapped, stuck in 15 feet of water. Now another woman, Jessica, who had just stopped with her husband at the beach for dinner, she found a discarded boogie board, and when she saw the people uh, pointing at the water, she had thought they were pointing at a shark. But when she realized that people were drowning, she jumped on the board, and she began swimming out toward Roberta and her family. Now the CBS News article where I read this quotes her telling herself, These people are not drowning today. It's not happening. We are going to get them out. And then, this is the truly amazing part, Jessica's husband and some other men started a human chain to bring everybody back to the shore. Some couldn't swim, so they stayed in shallow water, and eventually about 80 people got involved, and they got within feet of Roberta and her family. That's when Jessica and her husband and some others were able to tow Roberta's family back to the chain, which then passed them back to the shore. Roberta's mother suffered a heart attack. Her nephew broke his hand. But other than that, everyone was safe. Everyone lived uh, to see another day. Now here's what Roberta said after that whole ordeal. She said, I am so grateful. These people were God's angels that were in the right place at the right time. I owe my life and my family's life to them. Without them, we wouldn't be here. You know, it's so cool to see how we have our own lives and we're constantly living at a fast pace, but when somebody needs help, everybody drops everything and helps. 
It's so inspiring to see that we still have that. With everything going on in the world, we still have humanity, she added. Now, that's a great story, right? It's amazing. 80 people who don't even know each other connecting as a chain to save this family that's stuck out in the ocean. I want to tell you another story, and this one's from a year earlier. A man about as old as me, his name was Mark, was walking back from having some drinks with friends. He stopped at a 7-Eleven where he was met by his attacker on the sidewalk. He was punched in the face. He fell unconscious into the road, was crumpled up near the curb. After that, two men walked up and rifled through his pockets, stealing both his phone and his wallet. And he laid in the street for two minutes. Now across the street, people were outside, lingering at the very sports bar where he had been drinking and dancing. In the parking lot of the 7-Eleven, his fellow customers looked on. There's actually a video that showed people who walked by, crouched down, looked at him, and moved on. After two minutes of laying unconscious in the street, a taxi cab came and ran him over, ending his life. Now the inaction of those bystanders cost this man his life. Nobody got involved in the altercation. Nobody called the police. Nobody attempted to move him from the road to block traffic while waiting for help. No one from the bar. No one from the 7-Eleven. No one who drove by and even might have seen him or, or tried to even just do anything. They just watched and they crouched over him. They looked intently at him and they walked away and went about their lives. Why? You know, the Chicago Tribune, who originally reported this, interviewed psychologists and lawyers, and as it turns out, this is actually a pretty common thing. Psychologists call it the diffusion of responsibility, and some people might know it as the bystander effect. Someone else will do it, right? In fact, according to social psychologists, the probability that someone will help in these situations is inversely related to the number of people surrounding the incident. So that means the more people surrounding the incident, the less likely you are to get help if you're in trouble. So reasons cited were things like personal safety, believing that someone more qualified would do it, not wanting to get tied up with subsequent legal matters, worrying how helping will make them look, thinking that it might make them look foolish, taking cues from the people who are around them. Apparently they don't feel as guilty if nobody else is doing anything. Now, here's what the woman who raised Mark said. She said, if I had seen the person lying in the road, at least I would have tried to stop the cars from coming and called the police. I just don't understand people today. So two very different stories. Story of activity and a story of inactivity. Story of love and a story of passivity. And James today is going to ask us which story we want to be part of. Are we going to be passive or are we going to love? Will we hear and respond or will we just hear and move on with our lives? James is going to lay out two profiles, two religions as he's going to call them. We're going to look at the passive hearer of the word and the doer of the word. So James's big argument in this passage, and really this whole letter, is that our relationship with God and God's word should visibly transform our lives, resulting in good. 
So we're going to ask the question, what gets us from here to there? How do we move from being those who only hear God's word to those who actively embrace it to shape our everyday lives? We're going to bounce around this passage a little bit today, and I've broken it down into two parts uh, that we just talked about, the passive hearer and the hearer-doer, the one who actively does what they hear in the word. And as I go through both, we're going to look at three things, the root, the reality, and the religion of each. We're going to contrast their origins, their characteristics, and their spiritual worth. So let's look at what James has to say about the root of the passive listener. And remember, he's talking to professed believers here. He's talking to us. When he addresses his letter to his brothers and sisters, he's talking in terms of the family of God. Look with me at verse 22 through 24. He writes, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once he forgets what he looks like. So the first thing we see from James is that the passive hearer is deceiving himself. The self-deceit he's talking about has to do with the word of God and their own spiritual state. See, we'll get to this, but he's about to contrast this person with someone who hears and does the word. And James is going to give us an illustration of this person in the mirror to expand on this idea of self-deceit. You know, when I was reading this, I had the, to ask the question, like, what would make somebody look in the mirror and forget their face when they walk away? Like, what would cause that? My first thought was hastiness. Right? Like he didn't get a good look at himself because he must have been in a rush. But then we see from the text that this person looked intently at their face. This wasn't just a quick glance. To look intently is to look with attention. This man is taking it in. Yet he walks away and he forgets. I can't speak to how much attention was needed. Maybe uh, James is talking about somebody who had really messy hair. Maybe they had something in their teeth. I don't know. We'll never know. But James is talking about someone whose attention is brought to something, yet they do nothing. So the inaction of this man is something for us to pay attention to. One way to think about this man in the mirror is to ask ourselves, when we see something that needs attention, and we fail to act, what are some reasons behind that? You know, every once in a while while I'm driving, I might hear something good on the radio, like a show on NPR where they're interviewing somebody. And uh, a while back, I had heard this one where they were interviewing a woman who had wrote a book about a man named Dr. Harvey Wiley, who probably none of us have ever heard of. But he's called the father of the FDA. You see, as the Industrial Revolution rolled around, work moved from farm to factory, and so did food. And what that meant was that in order to make food more affordable, people would uh, deceitfully attempt to make it more affordable by adding um, chemicals and other additives that actually weren't safe. So listen to some of these. They would add chalk to milk to make it whiter. They'd add formaldehyde and borax to preserve it. They would add ground stone and use it as filler for bread. And the one that hurts me the most is that coffee grounds were often dried uh, and dyed sawdust with just a little bit of coffee added to it. That or they'd use wax uh, to imitate coffee beans. Cinnamon was brick dust. 
I mean, that's unbelievable, right? So needless to say, people were getting sick. They were even dying. And Dr. Wiley, who worked for the Department of Agriculture, had a small lab that he personally dedicated to uncovering the harmful effects of using these in food. He spent 20 years trying to tell the world that the chemicals they were consuming were killing them. Finally, he got a group together that he called the Poison Squad, and this was a group that had agreed to take a capsule which contained some of these ingredients with each one of their three meals per day. I mean, they obviously got sick, and after, after that, after he was able to publish that study, that's when the first law about food regulation was passed. So you can thank uh, this guy who nobody knows named Dr. Wiley for the reason why you're not drinking steeped sawdust this morning, right? One interviewer asked, which was my question, where was the public outcry? Some of this stuff is just plain obvious, right? Like wax coffee beans, the crunch of stone dust in your bread. Well, that brings us back to our question. Why, when there's something of serious consequence, do we choose passivity instead of activity? What makes someone whose family is sick and dying because of their poisonous food stay silent? How do we come to the word of the creator of the universe and walk away passive and unchanged? James says, self-deceit. Self-deceit manifests itself in the form of badly ordered priorities, right? We saw that in the story of the passive bystanders earlier. See, how we come to the word of God matters. James tells us in verse 21 to receive the word with meekness. Now, another word for that would be humility. We often come to God's word with the notion that we're the only ones who have the right to tell us what's right for us. That kind of Western way or uh, a really human way is our default when we approach God's word. So how can we expect to be doers of God's word when we already have determined that, we, that our will supersedes his? How do some of these badly uh, ordered priorities play out? What prevents us from taking action, whether it's for food safety or God's word? Well, busyness might be one of them. Other things are more important right now. I've got no time to even, to even read God's word, let alone process how I should live it out impatience. Life for God isn't really a one-and-done thing. It's not a flash in a pan. This is something that takes a long time, and endurance is required. James talks about that in the beginning of this letter. Self-consciousness might be one. How will I look if my life points to Jesus? If the way that I live puts me on the radar? If I have to give an explanation for why it is that I do what I do? This is where laziness comes in. This is where self-consciousness enters. This is where self-gratification overrules self-giving. It's where self-protection prevails over love. You know, maybe it's none of that. Maybe we just feel powerless. Like, I'm just one person. I have no voice. I have no ability to affect the world around me. I've been there. You know, I could tell you about documentaries that I've watched or Uh, testimonies that I've heard where I've heard things that have inspired me, that have frustrated me, that have made me feel like I have to do something. And then 10 minutes later, you know what? I do nothing. I walk away and I, I forget about it. Maybe it comes up every once in a while, but my life hasn't been changed. 
And one reason I can cite is that I felt like, what can I do? This problem is so much bigger than me, and I'm just one guy. Maybe the man in the mirror that James is talking about looks in the mirror and sees a problem that's too big for him to handle. When you come to the Word, do you sometimes feel powerless to put it into action? Maybe it seems too lofty for you. Maybe you feel like you're in a spiritual rut. Maybe you feel like the message is too big. Well, James says that powerlessness leads to passivity. Now, the greatest hindrance to being a doer of the Word of God is, of course, doubt or unbelief, particularly unchecked doubt or unbelief. If you don't believe something, it's not going to change your life. Someone can tell you that there's poison in your food until they're blue, and you'll keep drinking your milk and eating your stone dust bread. Unexplored and unchallenged doubt is one of the greatest hindrances to change. I won't name them, but I know of at least two 50-year-old men who look in the mirror and believe that the color of their hair is the same as it was when they were 30. Yeah, I'm related to both of them. And like you can't argue with them. They really, my hair's blonde. My hair's still blonde. My hair's still brown. So the passive hearer is self-deceived and is someone who comes to the word of God with mixed up priorities. Let's humble ourselves now and just, just admit that this is how we've approached God's word. If it were uncommon, James wouldn't have written it to such a broad audience of original readers. God wants us to read these words. He wants us to be changed by them. So here's what James has to say to us and our natural drift towards self-centered passivity instead of Christ-centered activity. Look with me at verse 19. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So now we've already admitted that we have a listening problem, right? But really, it's a problem with self-centeredness. At first, it might look like James is calling us to be passive when he says to be quick to listen, slow to speak, but he's actually addressing our reluctance to actively listen, to listen without thinking that we already have the answer. You know, we can hear without listening. We can memorize Bible verses and have no idea what they even mean or how they should play out in our lives. If you talk to some people who grew up in the church and who have uh, since left, they can still recite the Bible verses that they learned in their kids' programs. But they're just empty words to them with no bearing on their lives. And they'll tell you that freely. James is calling us to listen without the false sense that we're the center of the universe. He says, be slow to anger. See, to be easily angered means that you have a lot of pride. Anger can be righteous, like when we see injustice. We should rightly become angry. But anger isn't meant to be a lasting motivation, and it's not a good motivator. James isn't talking about righteous anger. Anyway, if you picture a person who's quick to speak, who never listens and gets angry really easily, They're usually not in a state of caring for others, not usually trying to battle injustice. James says that our anger doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Our anger doesn't lead to the righteous life that God intends for us. A commentator named J.A. Motier puts this well. He says, Anger is not a pure emotion. 
It's usually heavily impregnated with sin, self-importance, self-assertion, intolerance, stubbornness. And these sound a lot like the hindrances uh, to transformation that we were just talking about, right? He goes on, Most of us would have to confess that holy anger belongs in a state of sanctification to which we have not yet attained. James is writing to us and of us. Your anger does not bring about the righteous plans of God. So if we're to be doers of the word, we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We need to remove ourselves from the center of the universe. Now the reality is that we default to the opposite. That's the reality of the passive hearer. I want to keep reminding you that the passive hearer is a believer. That's who James is talking about. He's addressing this to us. James isn't blasting the world for its issues. He's blasting us, the religious people. So the one who hears the word but fails to do the word is self-deceived, James says. Not just in how they approach the word, but how they approach religion as well. Look with me at verse 26, where James addresses uh, the religion of the passive hearer. He says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. So now worthless religion is the trademark of the one who comes to the word with no intention of transformation. So James is again here talking about the unbridled tongue, a deceived heart, constant output with no desire for input. You know, we're responsible for controlling our words. We're actually also responsible for deceiving ourselves. There's no exception clause for the type of personality you have or anything like that. Our passivity doesn't remove our responsibility. And we don't take responsibility for obeying God's word. Uh, If we don't take responsibility for obeying his word, our religion's going to become worthless. So religion here is a broad term uh, used a couple times in the Bible, meaning outward practice that honors God. So what pleases God, what honors God, is the practice of his word. You know, we can avoid God's word and still busy ourselves with a lot of things that look like we're outwardly honoring God. You can serve in church without applying the word of God. Oddly, you can even preach the word of God without applying the word of God. How crazy is that? The root of the passive hearer is self-deception. The reality is self-centeredness. And the resulting religion is worthless, James says. So that's a pretty bleak picture that he's painted, right? James is painting these contrasting pictures to draw us away from one and toward another. So let's talk about what it looks like to hear the word and do the word. What does a religion of word-based activity look like? Let's look at the root of the one who's transformed by God's word, the one who lives the word. Look with me at uh, James one twenty one. This is right after he tells us that our anger doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. He says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So if I could sum up this verse in one word, it would be repentance. The root of the word doer is repentance. 
Repentance is a mind change that leads to a life change. It's turning away from sin, turning toward God. So why the word repentance? Because we all start as the hearer only. That's just our default, if even that. We need to acknowledge that. We need to acknowledge that our default approach to the Word of God is passivity. I just spent a lot of time talking about that, and uh, our default approach is definitely not meekness or humility. Contrary to the self-centeredness that gives way to quick anger is a humble heart that comes to God for life. For the Christian, he's calling us to live out who we truly are. He tells us, receive the implanted word. When he says implanted word, he's talking about something that we already have. He says, receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So This is a life-saving word. If we want to truly be doers of God's word, we need to receive it and recognize its power. This is the word that you believe that saved your soul. It has power. The words of the gospel are in here. He wants us to receive it, to hear it, and to respond to it. The reality is that when we approach God this way, and when we approach his word this way, we will be transformed. Our approach to others will move from passivity to love. The cure for self-centeredness is Christ-centeredness. So unlike the man who looks in the mirror, who forgets what he looks like, here's what James says about the one who's active in the word. Look with me at verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So James is using new terms now to describe God's word. He calls it the perfect law. He calls it the law of liberty. And when James calls God's word the perfect law, he's emphasizing the attitude that we're supposed to approach God's word with. One, it's perfect, right? We don't come to God's word with scissors. We don't come to it with whiteout and a pen. God's word is perfect. We come to it and we ask God how he would want to change us. How would he shape us with his word, not how can we shape his word? Number two, the word law just demands a response, whether we obey it or we don't, right? Uh, There's a response necessary to a law. When we passively break a law, we've still broken it. Action is required for obedience. Then James talks about this law of liberty. You might be thinking like, wait, laws are restrictive, right? How could there be a law of liberty? Freedom isn't the absence of restriction. It's the absence of bondage. Freedom isn't the absence of restriction. Hear that again. It's the absence of bondage. There are laws and restrictions in place to actually assure liberties. If you think about the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution prohibiting slavery, God's law brings freedom. Each one of the reasons I gave why bystanders refused to help, does that sound like expressions of Freedom or expressions of bondage? Worrying what people think? That's not freedom. God's word brings freedom. Doers of God's word are free. Freedom is to lay aside filthiness, as James said, and rampant wickedness, to use his words from a few verses back. 
Freedom is when we use the word of God to outgrow our own self-centeredness, our own self-deceit. It's when we live out the perfect law of our creator. James says God's law is the law of liberty. And he says that when we look intently into God's law and act, when we persevere, we're blessed in our actions. We use that word blessed a lot, and and maybe we don't sometimes think about what it means, but a working definition might be to be blessed is to flourish and thrive as you live according to God's ways and experience his favor. To flourish and thrive as you live according to God's ways and experience God's favor. James says that this is the reality for the doer of the word. Living according to God's ways naturally overflows into flourishing, not just for us, but for those around us as well. It naturally wells up into a religion of activity as opposed to a religion of passivity. Listen to what James says uh, about true religion in verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So the religion that puts God's word into action pleases God. James lists out two characteristics of this religion that pleases God. One is interpersonal, and the other is intrapersonal. One covers our responsibility for others, and the other covers our responsibility for ourselves. And he puts them in that order, I think, for a reason. So we're supposed to aid those who are in need, and keep ourselves unstained from the world. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction, he says. You know, throughout the Old Testament, God is the champion of the vulnerable, particularly widows and orphans. Uh, In Isaiah 117, he says this. God says, learn to do right to his people. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. So this call isn't restricted to orphans and widows, but all who are afflicted, vulnerable, all who are oppressed. How am I doing at aiding those in need? It's a good question to ask yourself. Second category is to remain unstained from the world. No, he didn't put this one first, right? We're not supposed to passively watch people suffer in the name of being unstained from the world. To be unstained from the world is to, as he said a few verses back, lay aside filthiness and rampant wickedness. Remember, one of the reasons that people didn't help that guy Mark as he laid in the road is that other people weren't doing it. It's inaction, breeding inaction. That's the type of stain that James is telling us to avoid. Remember when James said that anger doesn't bring about the righteous plan of God? Turn on your TV, open social media. You will see quick to speak, slow to hear, angry people thinking that they can build a better world. That's the stain we want to avoid. The people of God are meek. People of God are humble. People of God are gentle. And they're transformed by God's word. And they're set free to love. If you can truly love, that's freedom. That's what God calls pure religion. That's the motivation for a religion of word-based activity. J. 
James is going to bring up the royal law just a few verses after this. That'll probably be covered in the next sermon that you guys do. But uh, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, right? There's no greater law of liberation than that. Think back to those two opening stories that I gave. The inspiring story of the rescue of Roberta and her family contrasted with the tragic death of Mark at the hands of passive bystanders. Why were the outcomes so drastically different? If the rule really is the more bystanders, the less help, then Roberta's story breaks all the rules. Why? Love. One story began with a mother motivated by love to rescue her children. And then a grandmother. And then a stranger with a boogie board. And then her husband. And then about 80 strangers linking arms to execute a one-of-a-kind rescue mission. I mean, the grandmother had a heart attack in the water. You think she was thinking about how she looked? What other people were thinking about her? She even thinking about her own life? Others who couldn't even swim were helping this family. It's just like inactivity breeds inactivity. Love breeds love. We have an active, loving Father who sent His Son, Jesus, God Himself, of His own will, into the water on the greatest rescue mission of all time. Because if it were up to us, we would drown. And so would everybody else. Jesus enters in with intention and sacrifice as the ultimate hearer and ultimate doer of God's word. Jesus is the ultimate liberator. He signed the law of liberty with his blood. Where we're passive and disobedient, he was active, obeying the perfect law perfectly, all the way to the cross. Where we're self-interested, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Where we try to save face, he was humiliated. Where we are unbridled and angry, Jesus was meek. Our resistance to love God and our neighbor has been overcome by Jesus' pure and undefiled religion. He was afflicted for the afflicted, yet he died unstained by the world. Jesus fulfilled the perfect law by not only obeying it, but also taking our punishment for disobedience. He's the ultimate expression of God's word. The Apostle John calls him the word of God himself. And if you believe in him, your liberation was sealed the day that God raised him from the dead. And he invites us to follow him, to respond to his love with love. Believe in him. Some of you are going to hear this sermon and do nothing. That's just the way it is, right? But then some of you are going to hear this sermon and think that you have to do everything. But both of those result in bondage. Neither result in freedom. God's not out to transform people into mere hearers of his word or mere doers of his word. He doesn't want our apathy, and he doesn't want our self-reliance. We are linked to the one who loves. So let's rely on his work. Let's rely on his strength as we respond to his love with love. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for, for your word. We thank you that Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the perfect law for us. That we can rest in what he's done for us. That transformation comes through the work that you've done through your Holy Spirit. We are not asked to muster up some false spirituality. Only you can change our hearts. Only you can make us doers of your word. And I believe that that we long to be free to live out your word. And we pray, God, that you would help us to, to see that freedom, to take advantage of the freedom that Jesus bought for us by taking our punishment, by fulfilling your law. I pray that you'd help us to walk in this truth, help us not to walk away from this word and forget what it said. In Jesus' name, amen.